Welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Careers, the podcast where we discuss multi-hyphenates, dig deep into hustle culture, and find hobbies to fill the time until the post office starts delivering our mail on time again. We're your hosts, Catherine, Mallory, and Austin. Hello, hello. Uh, I guess this would be a good time. I can say I am Catherine, your co-host, fashion merchandiser, and professional skeptic. I'm Austin Mark, revered ornithologist and horse girl. Whoa, big words we're returning to. (laughs) And this is Mallory, a face mask model who's constantly reorganizing her DVD collection. Ooh, what's a DVD? Exactly. (laughs) Get on my level, people. It's called the 90s are back. Hey, uh... (laughs) The millennium. I don't even think we had DVDs in the 90s. That's how many iterations we've gone through of ways of watching a movie right wasn't weren't the dvds like the cool thing after vhs's were cool in the 90s yes yeah it was definitely like turn of this very century that we picked (laughs) up on the dvd trend now austin big word that you used oh ornithologist is a bird expert i became a bird expert when i found a dead crow in my backyard Uh, hear mm. that story listen to episode eight model behavior (laughs) (laughs) it's too good have you expanded on this uh ology of yours or i did go to a bird sanctuary or yeah i think it's a uh aviary here in Salt Lake, which is pretty awesome. It's like a bird zoo. Yeah, that qualifies. Yeah. I learned so much. Well, you got to join the bird. It's I think it's birding.com. It's, there's an app. Mm. There's an app for birders. And that's how I found pink flamingos in Mexico. Because you can drop a pin where you find birds. And we paid it forward mm. and dropped a pin. So other people could too. <gasps> My gosh, I, I need to drop a pin. I had a bald eagle fly by my head. Today. By your head? What? Like, not joking. Very, very close. To the point where I was like, I should pull out my camera and take a picture. And I was like, no, be in the moment. Observe the bird. He's right there. No, run. <laughs> Set down the mice. Oh, he wasn't aggressive. He was just gliding by. This is what it's like to live in the actual wilderness of Colorado. <laughs> I have to go to a zoo to see my birds. You're like, I just stepped on my front porch and a bald eagle landed on my shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I won't break the mystique, but it was in one of the busier areas of the town I live in. So I don't know what this bald eagle's doing. He's he's urbanizing himself. Oh. <laughs> a taste for flesh is what I hear. Hunting people. What are we doing here? Welcome back, listeners. If you've made it this far into the episode, you must really love us. Or have <laughs> or have a deep passion for multi-hyphenates, which or are... Birds. Or birds, I guess. <laughs> but this is a podcast not about birds, but multi-hyphenates who are professionals with multiple passions or multiple jobs, who are paying their bills and filling their souls with many things at once, because... Our grandparents were able to work the same job for 40 years and not lose their minds, but mm. we cannot because mm. of the economy they helped create. Thanks, Grandma. <laughs> so speaking of multi-hyphenates, Mallory, yeah, also this, we're doing this very week. This very week, I feel like we are living out maybe a manifestation of our ad that we initially put together in wanting to speak to someone who's building athleisure wear brand because we are speaking to Mary Bemis and she is the founder of Reprise, an athleisure wear brand where she's designing sustainable clothing while also holding down a number of different responsibilities. She works to a side in advertising. She's also pursuing a potential career pivot into venture capitalism as a new Pipeline Angels member and is a mentor for other entrepreneurs looking to pursue a career in the sustainable fashion industry. So I think we touch on all of those things, but it is really, it's fun to see the manifestation of the athleisure wear line come to life in its real flesh form with Mary speaking to not only 
all that that industry entails, but also how she got into that from starting as how I met her in college, an econ major. I was not an econ major, but she was. And that's where she thought her career would go. So she definitely is the definition of multi-hyphenate. For sure. I think it's also a really interesting conversation about sustainable fashion. There is so much going on with our clothes and what kind of fabrics they're made out of, because it turns out that a lot of us are wearing a whole bunch of plastic on our bodies all day long. And there are some scary potential repercussions from that. So saddle up kids. Well, (laughs) you make an excellent point that also she really takes it beyond just the, the materials. It's really exciting to hear someone moving at a slower pace to do it right. Everything from pain and sourcing in ways that are fair across the supply chain and a word I struggled to find you'll hear that which I just did too so there it is (laughs) 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 but yeah so I mean like from the bottom up and also just really admirable that she's learning how to do that herself and knowing how the entire supply chain works since I, I, I would imagine it's pretty easy to hire out and not have to have your fingers in all those pots. Yeah, she's a great example of bravery and someone jumping into the deep end of something they maybe w- didn't feel like they had all the resources or knowledge to do, but are is thriving and paying it forward, backward, whatever. Yeah. It's <laughs> paying mentoring. it in all directions. <laughs> yeah, she's just awesome. I really like. So let's yeah. jump okay. in. Let's hear it. Hi, Mary. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. We're thrilled to have you, and it feels like a college reunion of sorts for me. So it's wonderful to see your beautiful face across the country, but it feels like a reunion. (laughs) (laughs) It is. I love after all these years, we can still still keep coming back to catch up. But we're so glad you're here, and it feels like the conversation that we can have is obviously about being a multi-hyphenate, but definitely you might be one of the first people that we have who's literally straddling at least three different things (laughs) and doing them all somewhat full-time, which I'll let you explain how you can even do that, (laughs) but you have a day job, you have an entrepreneurial venture, and you're also pivoting into a a whole potentially a new career path. So we're thrilled to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a really exciting kind of changing times, just really figuring out like over the past few years what I'm interested in doing, pivoting a few times, but excited to share I don't know how I'm still, (laughs) how I plan to get through the next few months, but I think just excitement keeps me going and challenging myself and learning all these new things to get me onto that next journey. A lot of times it requires of us multi-hyphenates to have that adrenaline of newness driving us to keep doing new things. Otherwise, otherwise it would just feel like an endless list of new chores that you didn't know that you were going to have to learn how to do. Oh, totally. (laughs) Yeah. And the days that are quiet, I'm like, what? new projects do I need to, <laughs> I'm not very good at sitting still. So I love having the the list, but there's got to be meaning behind the list. Absolutely. So like you're doing, so to introduce that you <laughs> design athleisure wear and the brand is called Reprise. And I'm so proud of you for that. I, that's the thing that I think I see on social media most often and get just so excited for you about. And every time I assume you lean full time into it because you're getting written up by different magazines are having different coverage pieces. And every time I touch base with you, you're like, nope, still also doing everything else I was doing. So I don't know if you would be willing to give us a little overview of what you're up to and all the different spaces you're working in and touching on right now. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So as Mallory mentioned, I my what I like to call my main job is my company Reprise. So it's a line of plant-based activewear. And I launched it about four years ago. I started out an advertising company. I had recently quit a job and needed to pay the New York rent somehow. And the office is across the street from FIT. And I had had this idea for sustainable activewear and I knew I wanted to learn more about creating with natural materials and had this idea and learning about how much of our clothing was made with plastic. And so I signed up for classes. I figured we're across the street from FIT. Here's my chance to explore a little bit more while I took this 
day job in advertising. And I started to go to night classes at FIT and learn a lot more about fashion and production and how harmful all the materials that we normally are using for clothing. And the more that I learned, the more that I became obsessed with creating this new solution. And so on my nights then, I uh, started creating this company and really used that passion and drive to get through and find those other hours on my nights and weekends to create the company that I have now. We launched, I started doing this in 2017 and launched with a Kickstarter in 2018 and have been just running it on those nights and weekends ever since. With amazing, I feel like it looks and feels like a full, t- like it looks like the only thing you're doing. <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, Mary, don't be too humble. I can't, can you list, you've been in a couple different magazines that people would recognize and know that I feel like is something to toot your horn about just in terms of knowing you're doing this as a completely on top of a full-time job. <laughs> we were featured in Well and Good around a roundup of Best Black Legging, which was really exciting. And then FabFitFun recently did the same kind of thing. So really exciting to have some traction there, just bootstrapping and using those connections and finding creative ways to connect with people. Yeah, it touched my heart. Catherine <laughs> can speak to it. We're that's how we know each other is through PR. And actually one of the times, Mary, you and I talked was about helping you with PR. And at the time you were like, I don't know, I don't have anything right now. I'll come back later. And then slowly but surely I've seen you getting all this amazing coverage and just, I don't know, felt proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) I know still trying to figure out those opportunities. I was obviously felt a bit lucky with that one, but it does help get the name and the recognition there. But yeah, still just been running that. I know sometimes I am wishing it would be my full time. I think what's really helped me keep working on my day job and doing this is really getting to grow it in a sustainable way and not feeling that pressure of quitting a job and feeling like I have to make sales and have to hit certain amounts to pay my rent and be really stressed about it. And so I've been really grateful to be able to do both because I think it allows me to approach it in more of a creative outlet than a stressful needing to perform in a certain way. So I think that's probably why I've stayed so long doing both is really allowing it to still be this like fun outlet for me rather than a... I was going to say that's really smart to not only grow your business sustainably as you're doing a sustainability focus. Like you said, it can be so easy to feel this need to have to push it farther and faster than maybe even you're ready for. Yeah. And we've talked to other artists and creatives who have been in the position of having to fund their lives through their passion. And it so often is not sustainable. And particularly when you're working in a sustainable product, thinking of yourself as a resource is a smart idea. And you have limited time and creativity and availability to put your heart and soul into this. But while we're talking about it, I would love to hear just sort of a little bit of information about what you found out when you were looking into what's already in the clothes that a lot of people are wearing now? Like, what are the scary things that we didn't know about <laughs> my tar- about my t-shirt collection? It's so funny how it came about, because as Mallory mentioned too, like I didn't have a background in fashion, so I felt a bit naive, but I was going through my closet and I was trying to sell a bunch of stuff on Poshmark. And I was trying to, I was hoping that I was, I really needed to make some money. And so I was hoping I was selling a closet full of cashmere and, you know, silk. (laughs) And I was reading the label. I was selling and trying to write the description. So that's why I was like, I'll write what it's made out of. And I found myself writing polyester a bunch and I had no idea what that was. And so I just uh, did a quick Google search and I think I was just more surprised that it's essentially a plastic. And I think as we've all, you know, as society, we've done a great job of cleaning up our eating habits. We all know what to look at for ingredients. Natural beauty now is the trend of people really understanding what products they're putting on their skin and the the different ingredients there. And so the thesis behind the brand is really understanding fashion and skincare as well. It's on the other part of your skin besides just your face and really understanding what's what's in it. So yeah, the, the main thing is the raw materials for just fabrics in general are plastics. And what another thing that I feel like we're so disconnected with is plastic is just a crude oil. So when we're drilling for oil, that is a lot of that is going towards our fashion ingredients. And then a lot of the different things, especially in activewear that they apply for like quick dry or anti-stink or any of those kind of properties that we like, those really aren't super natural. And so there are a lot of just different heavy chemicals in there that can disrupt 
um, that endocrine system and have been linked to certain cancers and things like that. And so wow. I'm trying to really take a lot of that out and, and really use, we use a plant-based material called tensile, which is made from trees and then organic dyes. Uh, we dye everything in uh, California where there's a lot stricter regulations on ingredients. So trying to clean up all of that as it really is, especially activewear sits on your skin when you're sweating at budding and your pores are open. And so really trying to have everyone think about fashion as skincare in that same, that same degree. That's interesting. Scary too. I mean, I think like (laughs) since polyester was developed in the seventies, it's been such like a staple fiber in so much of our clothing, especially now in an age of fast fashion that has to be just like a very predominant issue with all of the clothes (laughs) that we're wearing and probably most of my wardrobe. Yeah, and the history is super interesting. It was developed because it is so much cheaper to develop and mass produce. And then it does absorb a lot of these properties that are way more convenient for our ever faster moving lives and convenience is key. So there are some things about natural fibers that are tough to shift the other way because they don't we're moving back to where we were before that of some of the properties that we're so used to. So trying to find a balance and meet people in the middle a bit of having a natural material, but still not having to compromise on things that polyester, you know, was really great for in terms of having our ever casual wardrobes. I don't want to make us like do all fashion deep dive here, but I am <laughs> a little intrigued about what I know very minimally is what makes the fashion industry pretty challenging is the, oh my gosh, I'm not even going to think of the right words, but the system within you have you, what you have to work and source material. The supply chain? Please help me say that better. Basically, <laughs> thank you. The supply <laughs> chain, yeah, is seems like it can be really, really difficult to break out of. And part of the reason that it can be so bad for the planet is because the supply chain has been so cemented and sort of this is the way it's done and this is the easiest least expensive way to do things. And I'm curious how you have either worked around that or by walking into it, how you're seeing it change through your company. Yeah, that's a great question. It's really tough. I think the hardest part for existing companies is that there's such a demand for newness all the time. And so for them to really make a change, you almost have to put the brakes on and start from scratch because they're up against these tight deadlines with always, there's like 52 seasons, they say, with Zara, not four, because there's something new every week that they're launching all these new, you know, collections all the time. So for them to make a change and disrupt that, it's almost not possible in their current thing because they're moving at that warp speed where they don't really have time. People ask, why don't you just go work for a Nike and work in their sustainability department and make change from the inside? And I think having worked in bigger corporate settings, it is that issue. It's like you need multiple layers of approval and it comes down to cost and it comes down to how quickly can we source this. And they're not willing to take some of those risks or it really has to be this compelling business case. Or So I think to be able to build something from scratch allows you to say, no, this is how it's going to be. We're going to change, start with this first and then build things around. And it's tough. It's had to make things go a lot slower for one year. All we had was black leggings because I wasn't able to source different colors or use different materials. I was pretty set on being more selective and saying we're only going to work with plastic-free fabric and polyester-free fabric. So it does limit some things, but I felt like it was really important to build that from scratch supply chain from the ground up. And that would allow us then to slowly build from there versus trying to break something that is already moving so quickly that people just don't have the time and there's pressure to make the profit and the keep on sales. And I think that can be really challenging for those big companies to, to make a change. It just takes a lot longer. So I was kind of like, okay, I don't have patience for this. I want to, I want to see a change now. <laughs> I like that answer though, because I feel like it almost is the multi-hyphenate thing. And I just cut off Catherine and Austin. So I'm sorry, you guys should ask your questions too, but it, it feels like I lucked out in asking that because your answer is sort of also insinuating that you've learned because of an experience you had not in the fashion industry because you didn't leap right into going to Nike or Zara, but instead you're, you're found your way into the side door, if you will, and sort of that a big company might move slowly or it might be difficult to make change from within there and that you're able to do what you need to do and want to do from a smaller startup seedling phase, if you will. 
It's so funny you mentioned that because before I did this, I was at working at an investment bank and that's, I don't think I ever connected the two until you just mentioned that, but everything required, even just getting like a day off approved to 10 people to sign off. And you were just like an employee ID number in a big system. And I really felt unrecognized and having come from a small high school and a small college and kind of places where you really had your identity and you could go off and create your own projects and could do your own things. I felt really lost there. And so that is why I had quit and said, I want to find something I'm more passionate about and I want to do something that has impact behind it and has meaning behind it. And then that's when I ended up exploring FIT and taking the advertising job. And so it's funny because I don't think I really connected those two until you mentioned that, but I did had had that experience before with a really corporate setting that was, I think, tough for someone who wants to create change and take on a bunch of projects and it just doesn't exist and it, it didn't exist. Like that. What did you need to say, Austin? Before no, we cut you I off? was going to say Catherine. Go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, now I'm like, well, that was such a good answer. I don't know what I was going to ask. I am, I am looking at the Reprise website, and first of all, it's beautiful, but also just the impact that the business has had through the processes themselves. I'll just quote here real quick. It's four thousand two hundred fifty nine days of drinking water saved. Like that's huge. Over one hundred fifty thousand hours of LED bulb energy saved. And also, I, what I really would love to ask about, in addition to being carbon neutral, which is very impressive. And we've talked about, we brought up briefly places like Patagonia and I think Adidas. They're these huge brands who are, for better or for worse, leading the industry in what is considered sustainable. Within that, there's all sorts of holes and problematic and behind the scenes. I actually. I'm currently a student at the new school. And so I took this semester a human rights and global fashion. And so I'm learning a lot of this oh. behind the scenes, which has been very, very eye opening. But one of the things from a human rights perspective, I really love that the brand is also local production. So I'd love if you could speak a little bit to that, because I think it's one aspect of sustainability that often gets left off the table, or at least not talked about in the same way as how harmful the actual production fabrics and things like that can be on the environment. Yeah, absolutely. So I can speak to both. I'm glad you brought up both the data part and the local production. So the data part is I'm actually a, a data analyst by day. And so for me, having the numbers and the backing behind what makes, I think you see companies launch all the time. They're like, we're sustainable or like this sustainable collection. And now it's become a buzzword and everything is sustainable. You can look at it from whether it's the size of the production you run, the materials, the ingredients, where it is produced. And so I think people get, now it's sort of a bit overused and I really wanted to have data showing why. And so I always turn to the materials that we're using with natural ingredients. And then because we produce locally and because we produce these materials, here's the data and like actually how much more sustainable than your traditional polyester-based overseas abroad manufacturing traditional path that most brands use. So that's, we work with a company called Green Story, who is amazing. And they're really the ones who do that life cycle analysis, track the data. You can tell them where you produce, what materials you use, who your competitors are, and they'll run the numbers. So that's where we got the data for that from. And then they also do the work to do uh, carbon neutral. So we purchased carbon credits. They purchased the carbon credits um, on behalf of us for to offset the impact of production there. So those are two projects I was really excited about. I used my, the other corporate experience I've had to really understand that part of it. Yeah. And then the local production is also, yeah, definitely something that's really, was really important for me. I think part of it was just a learning experience. I really wanted to be close to it so I could understand it was a whole new industry to me. I didn't know what it meant to knit a whole roll of fabric. And so I got to go to LA and really meet with the suppliers and also as a way to just make, see where it was made, but also understand like, is this truly sustainable? What do they mean? What does it look like? And also create those connections. I think another thing, a lot of these larger, uh, I don't want to make this claim because I guess I don't know, but having that relationship with your vendors is so important. I think as a small business, they really understand. And a lot of these fabric suppliers in LA are also small businesses. And so really getting to have that connection with them. And the same thing goes with the factory here. I worked with a couple of different factories all between New York and New Jersey and getting to go there and show up and see the process and meet everyone and show them what I'm working on and share the story with them and create that relationship. And so when things happen, especially in this past year, when the factories were turning to make PPE, we got to still donate fabric and stay in touch with them. And it really felt like we're in this together and that when they were ready to open up, they were, we were, had been in touch and it wasn't just a, there's so many stories of factories being 
left with these large orders that are unpaid. And I think that's another issue with these huge companies that it's purely profit-driven decisions. So I think there's so much more of a kind of in this together feeling when you produce locally and a lot more of the kind of small business connection. Not to say that there aren't large operations here, but the ones that I've been working with are definitely much more friendly to small businesses and they're in it with you and they're excited for you. And so... And then thinking about, I could talk about this forever, so sorry. To <laughs> no, it's great. Fashion, so feel free to edit what you need. But I think also understanding, I really learned a lot about kind of the cost behind garments. And if you think about minimum wage being $15 an hour, it takes however, you know, about an hour to sew a pair of leggings when you do all the work. And that's where a lot of that cost comes from when things are priced higher isn't just, I think. I didn't really understand why there was such a difference in cost. And so that was something that was really important for me too, to also try to figure out how to share that it's not just, I'm not trying to make a ton of money with where the price point is. It's better materials made locally, made with a higher cost of living here in the U.S. And so that's where a lot of that that ties into, which I'm sure you're learning a ton about. And that class sounds really cool. I mean, yeah, it is very, I I think you're making it many excellent points, but it is really hidden a lot of times of like, exactly how much does your pain for whatever brand, it can be 100 plus for something that we don't realize that necessarily a lot of that cost is, say, advertising or paying for ambassadors. And a lot of that can be, it feels hidden, I guess. And some of it is very purposely kept out of the public eye because it, it's not always, oh, what is the word I'm looking for? To not, I mean, not to like put a pin on it too much, but yeah, it's very impressive that you're taking the steps to know the suppliers and, and also just use that hybridity in your own expertise of like taking that data driven mindset, applying that to the industry and learning things from the ground up is really admirable. Definitely. Yeah. I love your throwing in the word hybridity, Catherine, because that's a callback to a conversation we had with another guest who is sort of reinventing this term that we've been using multi-hyphenate and really trying to drill into the idea that you can almost be a new kind of specialist just combining all the different things you do well and then using them for that as that as your piece of what you're contributing to the professional world but you're also reminding me of another another guest because I like the idea of relearning like why we pay maybe more for something like a pair of leggings or really putting thought behind it and we did speak to another woman who was talking a lot about how do we price our services or how do we value things. And I think in the gig economy, especially in the last couple of years, it's come to the surface and been a little bit more obvious, but perhaps before that it was to your point, a little bit easier to hide where the money was going, why something from Zara cost X amount of money versus something from forever 21 costing X. And then obviously the super high end brands. And, but I like the idea of, of, what you're explaining, which is not only am I not trying to become the next Hermes, but I am going to pay everybody what they deserve. And because of that, I'm going to land maybe closer to a higher end price point. But what I'm offering is really all a learning curve for everyone in that we we're paying for over 21 prices at the expense of the planet, of people, of even our skin. It sounds like, oh my God. <laughs> I don't want it to come off as like a scary thing by any means, but um, yeah, not to say there aren't you know, amazing ethical factories abroad too. And that's something that maybe I can meet people in the middle and pivot. And there's a way to, I know that Sometimes the price point can be exclusionary, but there are there are great brands who have found wonderful factories abroad that meet that cost of living, which is lower, but still pay a fair wage and take care of their employees. And then also not to say that every time that something is more expensive, it's better quality because right. as Catherine was alluding to, there's always, I think a lot of those luxury brands you're paying for kind of the branding and the marketing. And so, yeah, it's such an, it's a confusing space. I feel like sometimes I'm still confused because how do you figure out which one, which of those are closer to your values if you're shopping your values and what that means the most to you and what's worth spending on. I think it's almost become more confusing as people are trying to be more transparent. There's so many different ways to kind of solve this one issue. So doing it the, the best I can and with the ones that the ways that I know how, but I know there are so many other ways out there, other brands 
cool things. We're just trying to open to all the different types of solutions. So learning a lot through other people too, which has been a cool part of it. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's, it can be so difficult as a consumer to have a full understanding of where your products are coming from and the reasoning behind pricing. Like I'm a collector of costume jewelry, oh. uh, which I've mentioned in some other episodes. And I have, <laughs> I have a, <laughs> you can tell by my target brand t-shirt that I am a collector of very expensive <laughs> jewelry. Um, but I have, a large brooch collection and I have spent three to five dollars on many of my brooches and I have spent amounts of money on a single piece that I won't say here because my husband (laughs) listens to the podcast Uh, and it can just be really difficult to understand like it's all made out of this it seemingly is made out of like the same metal and fake stones and like the pin on the back I can buy a hundred of them for six bucks on Amazon what's the point or the difference or and a lot of that is advertising but occasionally it is down to like a true artisan involvement and like very high-end couture garments are made with handmade lace made by old Italian ladies who are the only people who still know how to make handmade lace and they take hundreds of hours to complete one garment so I think everybody could have a little bit more of an awareness of where things are coming from and and their involvement in the supply chain and the scary capitalism that we all operate in. But actually, one thing that I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned that you didn't have a background in fashion and this came came about organically, no pun intended, but... (laughs) that you just real you realized organically that the garments that you had already owned weren't of a quality that you were comfortable having on your body but not having any involvement in fashion before or starting a company i just that seems like such a scary endeavor <laughs> to me how did you find the confidence to be like i'm just going to like do the thing myself That's a great question because it's also such a pivot for me. I think it was really unexpected just given who I've always, you know, been a bit more of an introverted, quieter person. And so it was a total change for me. I don't know. I just, as I mentioned, I was working in this kind of, when I had moved to New York, I really was interested in finance and I was always thought I'd be this like really corporate finance person. And I got there and I just had a little bit of a core life crisis, to be honest. It was like, this is not for me. I really am unhappy here. And I just don't like this at all. And I think I just craved something that maybe expressed more of like who I really was. I think I'd put this idea of like what seemed successful and was following this path of like maybe what I thought was successful and pushed myself into this mold of like, this is what I'm going to do. And when I actually got there, I was like, this isn't really maybe who I am at all. And it just took me a little bit longer to figure out who I I was and what I needed. And so I think it was this craving of like following something that I was like truly interested in and truly passionate about and feeling that for the first time of like, wow, I like love this and I want to put it out there. And it's a way to express myself and a way to listen, I found this thing that I'm really passionate about and want to share it with people. And so I think there was just this like drive to show that of, (laughs) of like all this new stuff I was learning and stuff that I was like, this just feels like the first time I can be really excited about something for like, just for me. And it doesn't really matter what it, what it means. And then I think having this goal. So the accelerator program I did, which is called factory 45, which I'm now coming back to be a mentor for to kind of like give back and and train other sustainable fashion entrepreneurs. But their whole model was kind of like, here's how to source, here's how you find factories. And then here's how do you launch with a Kickstarter? And so I think having a goal like that and putting it out there, I was really scared to share when I first started, I didn't tell anyone. I was even scared to tell my friends and family until I had gotten sourced the fabric. I just didn't want, I think any sort of of the like surprise or there was no negative judgment, but I didn't want anything to stop me or sort of start those doubts and questions until I was like too far into it. So I waited for a while to be honest. And then having finally announcing it, like three months before I did the Kickstarter kind of gave me a like, okay, well, I got to do this now. Everyone knows. And I put it out there a goal and Kickstarter is all or nothing. And so you sort of are like, Hey, I'm all in. If I don't raise this, I don't get it. And it was, 
terrifying. Yeah. I like posted on Instagram that I was doing it and I literally, I think I turned my phone off and like went for a run. I was like, I don't want to know. And you come back to nothing, but like such support and warm and everyone cheering you on. But I was like, what am I doing? And so it was definitely there. But I think having that kind of like force you to do it and force you to reach this goal definitely helped me just sort of be like, okay, I'm, I'm committing to this. I, I have to do this. Yeah. I think that speaks to like the, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome on the podcast. We've recently redefined that for ourselves or expanded on that definition, but I think it definitely speaks to finding the courage to fight past your own fear and be like, this is super scary, but I'm going to do it anyway and see how it shakes out. And grabbing knowledge, right? Like almost to your what you did, which is not necessarily feeling as if, oh man, I should have gone to college for fashion. If I wanted to do that, I could have. And instead being like, you know what? I'm just going to do this like night course at and like figure it out. And I think that imposter syndrome, the redefinition or the re-engagement we're having with it is this idea that it can pop up when you feel like your life experience or who you are in the greater sense of how you've operated in the world isn't able to show up in full at your job or in the space where you work. And I think part of that can be religious or race or gender, but some of that is certainly, I think, too, just like life experience and where you've gained knowledge. And it sounds like you maybe were driven to do econ through college. And even though we went to a liberal arts school, there was opportunity there, I think, to expand your mind in ways maybe you didn't even know where it was happening as you were getting a more traditional business degree or finance-focused degree agree but it sounds like really you were able to blossom when you had the contrast against a career in something you were knowingly not fit for basically you showed up and you're like this isn't right this does not feel (laughs) like home to me where do I go next and I think the imposter syndrome even that we've the way we've redefined it seems like it's also knowing to listen to that gut instinct and be like, no, I need to drive towards knowledge or show up in a way that feels more fitted to who I am and how I want to be in the world. And so I don't know, that's pretty cool. <laughs> like Austin said, very brave. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that's such an interesting way of thinking about it. And there's totally times where I felt like, who am I to do this? Like, what am I doing here? And I felt it, but you feel like no matter what you're doing, I think the thing that keeps you realizing that everyone, I think talking about it more helps so much hearing that everyone has experienced it at some point, no matter where you are in your career or or project. And then I think just having that passion to be like, who cares? I'm still going to keep doing it and I'm still going to keep learning and everyone is always learning. And if you felt it at the beginning or I feel it now, it's not really going to go away. And so taking that and being like, okay, what, what's, why is it popping up? Is it something else I need to learn? Or is it something else that I need to explore more? Or is it telling me I need to, you know, focus on this area and learn a bit more there. So using it as a tool to, yeah, that gut feeling of kind of like, what is it showing me that maybe it's an encouraging thing of kind of like, it's an area where I want to explore more instead of something that needs to keep you from, from going forward. Yeah, I think it seems like it's also a sign that maybe you've entered a space that perhaps was closed off before it wasn't as easy to access. And so not that it's a good thing that you're experiencing it, but I think it hopefully is a sign that like you're pushing into new spaces and new frontiers and hopefully you're being greeted by enthusiasm on the other side or people are helping you, but also that you represent somebody pioneering into spaces and doing things differently and you're bringing this person who you are with you and you're kind of like oh I didn't grow up as a wanting to be in fashion or knowing all about it or necessarily having all of the creative energies flowing all the time but almost to Catherine's point earlier that your hybridity is creating a new space you're really able to better represent what you're doing because you love data and you like numbers and so we can pop to your website and truly understand impacts in a way that I think aren't as obvious when you're looking at just like, look at this eco-friendly cycle drawing I have on the tag of my new <laughs> whatever I bought. <laughs> Definitely. 
I think one kind of question that I had to sort of zip us back into this hybridity multi-hyphenate space is asking you to speak a little to how are you balancing it all, Mary? And maybe even popping the bubble on that and helping listeners or to explain like it may be less of the magic of what that sounds where you're working nine to five and then you also are doing reprise and then you're also going to be a mentor and then you also want to go see friends and family. Like seriously, how are you doing that? And do you have advice or things that you're looking forward to not doing again once COVID's over perhaps and life is a little more normal? <laughs> oh, a whole long list of all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I know I wish I could say that I, it's like an easy structured thing like that, or that it is, I'm able to balance it all. I think there are definitely weeks where I feel really overwhelmed and like, why did I take all this on? I love to take on new things and forget about the balance sometimes. But I think that having what I've learned maybe is a better way to put it and try to still apply is really recognizing those times of, I think, signs of like burnout and really just where you're exhausted, everything feels like another thing on this never ending to-do list. I think one thing with being an entrepreneur is there's always a never ending to-do list, but you have to be okay with not having to cross everything off. I love to make a list and I love to have everything crossed off. And so maybe just picking, knowing, okay, realistically, I can probably only get two or three things done today. What are going to be the most impactful? I used to sit down and make a list and it would all of a sudden have 20 things on it. And I'd feel stressed <laughs> at the end of the day because I didn't, get, I got two of them done. And 20 of those things, probably like some of them were things that could happen in like three months and be fine, but it just was top of mind for me. And so I think learning to, you can still make the list of 20, but maybe for your day, pick that one thing that's going to be the most impactful. And it is a good exercise to go through them and say, how many of these things do I actually have to do versus want to do or like think I need to do? And if there's truly only enough hours a day to get one or two of these, which is going to have the most impact on the business. And that's helped me really have a critical eye to kind of like this busy work that I think we all love to just kind of like feel like we need to do so much stuff. And so I don't think I've mastered that, but that's helped me over the past few years go from like burning both ends of the candle or whatever. <laughs> I forget what the thing is. And feeling like I'm always working to being like, you know what? I need my sleep and I missed my friends when I, I think the year that I was launching, I sort of shut down and just got into this hole of creating and didn't really see people. And I realized I felt lonely and I missed people and missed having fun. And so I think trying to be a bit more mindful about the things that I'm like putting on my to-do list. And if it means that I'm growing a little bit slower, I don't send out a marketing email every week. It's okay. It's not going to have the, it's not going to ruin my business. Or if you need to step away for a week to go on vacation, it's okay to do that. You do that in your day job and things keep moving and there's still a business and still work to do when you come back. So I think just some of that has really helped in just putting boundaries and realizing that like my happiness and sanity, it comes before the never ending to-do list, which will always, always be there to come back to. And I think, yeah, just trying to prioritize. I also, I guess I'm curious too, because I selected the job that I have now, my more day job, in part because it during the interview process, it was open and honest and welcome to have side hustles or side gigs or other things. And I've seen that bear fruit in terms of people I work with have published books and gone on book tours and others are insane athletes doing crazy adventures all over the world. And I myself have been able to keep side hustles going. And I'm just curious if you in selecting the job you have now that maybe is the job that turns the lights on and pays for the internet. I won't assume anything, maybe Reprise is doing some of that too, but <laughs> are, are have you been able to communicate honestly with them about all of your interests and how do you do that? And do you have advice again, maybe perhaps in that space as well? Like, what do you say to your boss who's signing checks? Like, hey, I need to go to California and meet with the fabric designers. Yeah, I got really lucky. So I don't think this would have been the same case in my in the finance job before. There also just was no free time. I was working insane hours there, definitely past midnight, get in at you No, know, I think I saw know. an article that beginner people starting careers in that space work 90 an average of 95 hours a week. Oh yeah, it was easily like show up at 8 and then I there were times where I wouldn't leave until 
2 a.m. and you just take a black car home. And so I think that also like I did that. And then I started a job that was very much 9.30 to 6. And so I would leave at 6. And I was like, I have six plus hours of the day that I would normally be working. Like, what what do I do with myself? And so naturally (laughs) I started a company, but we're all begrudging it. We're like, oh, six. And you're like, six. Oh my God. I can see. I know now I'm much more of that. I'm like, oh, it's still light out. I need to get outside. I need to stop working. But yeah, I mean, I definitely was looking for something with more of a work-life balance where I could work normal hours and enjoy friends and not feel quite so burned out all the time. And I was really scared to tell them, I think for, I told them I was taking classes, night classes at FIT because there were times where I would literally have to log off right at six and go. The class started at six or 6.30. And I think they were sort of like, oh, okay. And I was just like, it's just a passion thing. And then I finally told my boss when I was going to do the Kickstarter because I felt like Kickstarter is your friends and family support. And I had gotten closer with these coworkers. And luckily it's really, a, I love the I do love the people I work with. It's been a really great community in this this job. And so I sort of felt like I, I need the community behind me. And so I need to tell them. And I wasn't sure. I was like, they'll either be happy or they'll tell me no. And I'll <laughs> have to get another day job, I guess. But they were really, they've been so incredibly supportive. I got to do like a lunch and learn talk about it and share it in front of the company. So many people of my, so many of my coworkers have become customers. So I really feel incredibly lucky and grateful on that side that it, did. I definitely have friends who don't share that same experience, whether they work in fashion, so it's competing, or they work more of a corporate office that just doesn't want to have any risks associated to things like that. But yeah, no, my current job has been incredibly supportive. I now talk openly about it. I wanted to put it on share things. I wanted to put it on social media. I wanted to share that. And they're all friends on those platforms. And so I felt like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I need to be honest about it. And I'm really glad I was. They've been They've been great. So I think having people who are thinking about something, I think being having that conversation with your work that you want to do it. I think a lot of workplaces are now understanding, especially in the work from home era now that we all have a lot on our plates and lives outside of work and things that we want to do. And so I'm hoping more places are open to this kind of gig economy or entrepreneurship or it's so it's easier than ever to with Shopify and all the tools to build websites and things like that so many more people are getting involved. And so I think it's become more, more accepted. Here, here. I hope so. Cause I do, I like that idea of instilling some confidence in people to be able to share with their work, what is going on in their personal lives, maybe not overly personal, but I think also letting them know that you have you know, other passions or things that are probably informing a successful experience at that job. Like I'm sure what you're doing with three prize is informing your ability to be a better advertiser, better person on the team. Yeah. It's been really interesting to learn about the whole marketing funnel. I've shared a lot with other entrepreneurs in this, through this mentor program of being able to say like, you can't just run ads and expect all of them to give you a high return. You really need to create this story and get people aware of the product and the learning, the marketing funnel there. And it also was a really cool way for me to connect with my coworkers. There've been a few who are really interested in other, other people interested in sustainable fashion or healthy living who have come on as like advisors or really supportive. And so there are people or everyone has, everyone has a million cool connections. And so once you share what you're passionate about, they may say, oh, I have a friend who does this too. Can I introduce you to? So I've opened up a lot of connections that way as well. Just if you ask one person for one connection, all of a sudden you have connections that will help you through a bunch of different stages or ideas, or you've done a lot of um, really cool events with her. And so I think that was another part that I was really surprised by. I think of them as like my advertising coworkers, all they know is advertising. And that's not true. They're multifaceted people with tons of really cool connections and other friends outside of work. So that was another like surprising benefit I found with sharing with work was that these coworkers may have also had other connections to, to this that can help as well. Which is also really good to hear that you have that supportive environment. I And I just wanted to circle back because you're making this, it seems like you've touched on a couple times of how you've been able to use your connections, which I think a lot of times people can, or sometimes people can think it feels a little smarmy of this idea of networking or reaching out to the people in their lives. And it, sometimes it just has to do with more of the, yeah, like reaching back to the imposter syndrome of 
am I able to put myself out there in this way? But it's really interesting that you've been able to use those connections and talk to people and put yourself out there in a way that's been able to further your business. I guess, would you have any advice about that as well? Of like, You've been able to use this creativity and how to apply that for other people. Yeah, I think what I've realized is that so much of it is like things you learn from other people or the personal connections. I mean, everything that I, other than the, even the classes at FIT, there were the teachers there were all people that work in New York in the fashion district. And so you just start talking to people and it's such a small world, honestly, more than ever. I felt like we're all connected somehow. And so you just, I think the way that I've been able to build things is just through talking with people or through other connections or sort of a friend introduces me to one person and all of a sudden I have help with, you know, some of the pattern making stuff and then I get another connection or this random way I found out the well and good article, things like that. You just realize that your, I know networking feels like that, like, ugh, no one really likes to do the force, like corporate networking, but I think <laughs> using your, just like your community, it's all community focused. And when I talked about having that relationship with my suppliers, it's the same thing. The ways that we've been able to work together is building that relationship and fostering that you know, building a community, connecting the different suppliers together, connecting customers together, and really creating community there, looking through the advertising, my advertising job and kind of creating that community and then finding their contacts and sort of always growing this support system. I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to do a fraction of this without just that support system and community. And so I think thinking of it more as less of like asking things of people and networking and that uncomfortable putting yourself out there and more of like, how can I bring people together? And if you're asking for something, you probably can help them too. And so it's a two-way street as sort of that it's usually a connection that will be mutually beneficial. And so really trying to have it be more of a like, you're, you're trying to make friends and you're, and you're have something in it for everyone rather than this like networking, just searching for contacts and knowledge. I think has helped me approach it because I know that I don't, putting yourself out there is definitely a vulnerable feeling, but thinking of it as sort of a, how can I help them to, how can we make this exciting has helped. I love calling it creating community because that's really, that's a great way to put it. Um, that's what it is. I want, really want to stitch together, wink, this nice. third piece <laughs> of the puzzle. As our time winds down, I don't want to miss out on talking about the next thing that you're trying to dip a toe into, because clearly you're not busy enough. Uh, <laughs> you're also getting into the world of venture capitalizing, certainly not the term, <laughs> in the world of venture capitalism. I Nope. I don't know. <laughs> Tell us about it. Yeah, so this is something I'm really, really excited to talk about and is really new. It's only in the past kind of month. I think one thing that I've really thought about as I've chosen to keep Reprise as my side project, my creative outlet, and it probably won't be paying all of my bills soon. Never say <laughs> um, never. New York rent is, is tough. I've thought about if I'm going to keep a day job, I really want it to be something that aligns a lot more with all of these things that I've become really passionate about. And while I'm thankful for the experience I've had in the advertising industry, it's just, it feels like they're two separate lives. And I really wanted to find something that fits more and in, into what I love to do and bring those together. And I started thinking a lot about kind of what, what that would be. And one thing that I realized as I've gone to a lot of these female entrepreneurship conferences or met a ton of other female entrepreneurs along the way through different pop-ups I've gone to or events or panels or things like that. And as I mentioned in the beginning, I tend to be more of a, loved being an entrepreneur, but tend to be more of a introverted, supportive <laughs> behind the scenes person. Most of my jobs are behind a screen and I I prefer to be that. I'm happy to get on a panel and talk through things, but I think my comfort zone is sort of supporting other people and figuring out how I can help and provide resources and support other, other women entrepreneurs. And so I, and I do have this finance background and I did, well, I didn't love like the corporate setting. I did love that numbers, econ, formal training that I had in college. And I think when I started to think about all of these being in the world of investing and finding more ways to bring more access to female and underrepresented founders is really something I've become really passionate about. I think I learned, I read an article that I think it was in Forbes that in 2019, only 2% of venture capital money went to female founders. And that like 
just alone made me so fired up. I was like, how is there's billions of dollars going to so, and the venture capital world has blown up in the past 10 years and there's so much money there and how is 2% is just atrocious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it just was really shocking to me. And that's all women. It does include other upper underrepresented groups. And I think those numbers are even, even less. And so I think that was something that I just was like thinking about all the people I've met and who have wonderful, extremely, who are extremely talented and have great ideas and just aren't, they don't have maybe those friends and family connections. And a lot of investors are are white men who are investing in what they know and what they, what they're comfortable with. And there's so many opportunities that they just are getting missed. And so I think I could also talk about this for hours, but I won't (laughs) wrapping up, but that's something that I just see such potential in, and there's so many really cool people paving the way now, um, starting to pay attention in this space of just really understanding kind of the the lack of representation. And so I'm right now in a training program through Pipeline Angels, whose goal is to, their tagline is changing the face of angel investing. And they're really, their goal is to be that friends and family network for people who maybe don't have those business school connections or don't have those networks. And um, who really are deserving of funding. And so learning how to, what it means to work in venture capital. And I would love, and hopefully when this episode airs, I'll be um, making more <laughs> progress there, but just trying to work. It would be, I know venture capital, I wish there's another word for it because I don't want to go and be a part of this large system. I really want to be in that early pre-seed stage, helping more early founders get that because I did Kickstarter and I think money is, you need it to grow a business and you need funding and you need opportunities like that. And so really just helping to get more, more access to capital for, for founders who need it. That's great. That's what's next. (laughs) Well, and being able to just pay it forward with what you've been able to learn is so valuable. I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It feels like another, like a total sidestep pivot from, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be my, you know, fourth industry, it's definitely different to work in. But I think when I thought about sort of the thread through everything, which I know is something that you guys talk about a lot is looking at the kind of like the finance background and then understanding now marketing and kind of the data behind that and the storytelling part, the entrepreneurship part, I'm hoping all of those experiences will tie in well with helping to advise entrepreneurs and helping them get the access they need and get the networking they need and have these different contacts in different industries to help make connections and yeah, give back, like you mentioned, and use my kind of seemingly random experience to help in many different ways than just in just one area. So I'm hoping it will, it feels like it's like bringing it all together into this next step, but I'm hoping that's how it will play out. We hope so too. I know. I'm already envisioning another episode with you and someone (laughs) we talked to who also just leaped into venture capitalism and you guys both coming together perhaps to teach us about this. Because I do, I, I think you're touched on it. It's probably not worth drilling down, but the idea that when someone goes for seed round funding, they are looking to their networks. And if they don't, their network doesn't have money or they don't come from a place where people can give more than 50 bucks, like investors don't typically want to look at those companies. And so it's this horrible cycle of just the haves and the have nots keep separating further and further. And so I can't wait to hear all that you learn through your pipeline. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. They've We've had like a boot camp last weekend and then just did a long session yesterday and just learned so much around kind of the history behind venture capital and why it has become so just in that sort of old boys club, for lack of a better term, and really learning about the players who are really trying to make a difference and make a change. And we'll get to, I'll be advised by some general partners in these really cool funds that are founding our funding underrepresented founders and we'll get to work with some of the companies too and help advise them and help them grow and so get some really cool hands-on experience that I hope will help me learn a lot more and and pivot into that the next step so I'm really excited well where can our listeners find you and support you in all the things you're doing yeah for anything reprise related a lot of I think Probably my most active channel is the Instagram. So it's at repriseactivewear or the website, which is just repriseactivewear.com. Those are probably the best places I'll probably share across. I'm trying to think for anything else. I don't have anything yet for any of the venture capital stuff. So that's okay. (laughs) Where's the mentor program that you participated in? Yeah. So the program is called Factory 45. And so I think they have an Instagram too for at Factory 45. They're going to be launching in uh, May 
with the new cohort. They launched once every year. And so if anyone listening is interested in starting a sustainable fashion brand, mm-hmm. this is really a really cool program. I went through it. I mentored last year and going to be mentoring again this year. So you can get a chance to work directly with me and really get a chance to you learn everything from sourcing to production to how to launch and really just get that support in the community that I found really helpful. So that is also launching in May. So a lot of exciting things to come. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you all. I really loved this. Thank you for giving me the platform to share everything. I I really loved sharing what I know and what I've experienced. And I hope this is helpful, but thank you so much. (laughs) Endlessly, we have a fun time talking to people who are passionate about what they're doing. And so it's always fun to talk to more people with more passions about different things and who are thinking about things that we haven't gotten a chance to think about yet. And certainly sustainable fashion and all that surrounds that is something that we could all be giving more thought to. So we appreciate your voice on that. Of course. Thank you for the platform. Love that you have a podcast. We love it too. (laughs) (laughs) Most days. (laughs) Well, we will check back with you and find out what's happening next, but we appreciate your time. So thank you, Mary. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We will chat with you soon. Yeah. Bye. 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 And thank you, listeners, for joining us for this episode of Blood, Sweat, and Careers. Please remember to rate and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you listen on. We are also on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Blood, Sweat, Careers. You can always send us emails with ideas or thoughts or glowing reviews at bloodsweatcareerspod at gmail.com. And we will see you next week. Bye, guys. Bye.